0: What is good, everybody? Look, I'm ready. And I know I say I'm ready almost every single episode of the podcast, but I say it because I truly am ready to share with y'all some of this dope stuff that I have learned in my study. And we're going to be covering Romans 6. If you listened to last week's episode, we talked about the first half of Romans 6, and now we're covering the last half of Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. But before we go any further, I need to go ahead and And kind of set a standard when it comes to the purpose of the law the purpose of the old covenant what was the purpose of god giving moses and the israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness what was the purpose of the mount sinai covenant or the law what's the purpose of it and i think it's important for us to understand this not just for romans because romans paul talks about the law a ton because he's talking to a group of gentiles and jews and he's trying to help them all understand why the law was there what's the purpose of it and how it applies to new testament messianic christian believers and it's not just important for romans though a majority of the new testament touches on the law and a christian's relationship to it you have it in the book of hebrews that's a big one almost all of paul's letters touches on this and so we need to understand what the purpose of the law was in the first place so why did god give the law often it's assumed that the goal of the torah which is the first five books of the hebrew bible often it's assumed that the purpose of the torah Was to get israel was to get god's people to the law like the law was the end goal That's the assumed idea of the torah It's this idea that once we can get people to the law Then we're good like like once god can get his people To the law and this covenant, then they'll be good. They can follow it They'll be righteous and we'll be set and if we assume that's the purpose of the torah then we will undoubtedly be misled to think that the only reason that we needed Jesus in his sacrifice was because Israel broke the law that's the that's the wrong idea that we can get if we think that the whole purpose of the torah was to get to the law and the whole purpose of the law was for Israel to be able to be righteous if we if we walk into our reading and understanding of the Bible, then we will think that the only reason that Jesus came, or that the sole purpose for Jesus, was simply because Israel broke the law. But Paul informs us that this isn't the case. In Romans ten verse four, he says, "For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes." So Paul's telling us that Jesus is the purpose of the law. the The purpose of the law wasn't for Israel to be righteous. It was to get israel to jesus And that might be easy for paul to say right like oh, of course paul You would say that now that christ has come because obviously the law didn't do what it was supposed to do But no, 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 the torah informs us of this fact as well It informs us of this fact at the beginning of the torah in genesis and at the end in deuteronomy And the first parallel I want to point out is the parallel between Adam and, and Israel at the very beginning in the first chapters of Genesis. I want to read through Genesis uh, 1, verses 27 through 28, so we can kind of get an idea of what's going on here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. On the earth. Okay. So in this passage, God creates man, Adam, and he does three things. First, he blesses them. Second, he commands them to be fruitful and multiply, which would be expanding their seed. And third, he tells them to subdue or conquer the land. Now, Seth Postel in his book, Reading Moses Seeing Jesus, points out some interesting parallels between Adam and Israel. He says, look, in Genesis 2, God prepares a special land, which would be the Garden of Eden, for Adam, and he puts Adam into the land that he prepared. Adam's continued enjoyment of this garden is contingent upon the keeping of just a few commandments, to be fruitful, to subdue the land, and do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in genesis 3 we're introduced to the ser- the serpent an inhabitant of the garden who deceives adam and eve now adam and eve should have subdued the serpent as commanded in chapter 1 verse 28 but instead are themselves subdued by the serpent disobeying god's commandment and are subsequently exiled from the garden eastward where their descendants eventually find themselves in babylon and we read about this in genesis 11 so where's the connection to israel Like this is adam's story, but how does this apply to israel? Well, look god blesses israel and makes them fruitful He gives them not just one commandment But gives them 613 He brings them into the land of canaan To subdue and conquer it and in order to stay in the promised land. They have to keep The law keep the commandments and both adam which would be his descendants and israel were exiled eastward to babylon all of this to say that if the ultimate purpose of the opening of the torah which would be genesis 1 through 11 if that purpose is to encourage and warn israel to keep the law it seems like it's done a pretty crappy job i mean let's be honest adam had one job one commandment And in the most perfect conditions known to mankind, literally walking with God, he broke that commandment. So, if Adam, given all of these conditions, can't obey one law, what is Israel supposed to do with 613 laws in unideal circumstances wandering through the wilderness? So, when we see the parallels of Adam and Israel being told to be fruitful, having a blessing given to them, in having commandments that they both broke, being put into a land that God prepared them, and failing to obey the commandments that God gave them and being exiled leading to Babylon. All of these parallels, the story of Adam's fall is supposed to be a prophecy that Israel would do the same thing Adam did. So that's the beginning of how the Torah informs us that the purpose of the law is not to get to the law. And so we also see this at the end of the Torah, where it predicts the downfall of Israel as well. Moses prophesies Israel's inability to keep the law, and he does this uh, multiple times in the latter parts of Deuteronomy. But I'm going to point out two. The first one is going to be in Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. Let's read this. He says, in the future, when you experience all these blessings and curses I have listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart all these instructions. So what's Moses saying? He, he's, he's talking to the Israelites, and Moses is prophesying that the Israelites are going to break the law, and that they're going to end up being exiled. He continues on in Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, you are about to die and join your ancestors. After you are gone, these people will begin to worship foreign gods the gods of the land where they are going they will abandon me and break my covenant that i have made with them then my anger will blaze forth against them i will abandon them hiding my face from them and they will be devoured terrible trouble will come down on them and on that day they will say these disasters has come down on us because god is no longer among us at that time i will hide my face from them on account of all the evil they commit by worshiping other gods so moses has prophesied multiple times now at the end of deuteronomy before israel's walking into the promised land he has already prophesied that israel is going to break the law so it's obvious that from the beginning of the torah to the end that israel is not expected to keep the law the, well let me rephrase they're expected to like they're always encouraged to keep the law moses says this multiple times but moses knows that they will not keep the law they're expected to just like you might expect your child to obey your you know what you ask of them but you know that inevitably they will break the law so if the purpose of the torah was to get israel to the law so they can obey it and be righteous it doesn't make sense that the beginning of the book of of genesis and the end of deuteronomy Are both prophesying that israel is going to fail in regards to the law So the purpose of the torah is not to get israel to the law. That's not the purpose of the law Rather, it's to get israel through the law which points towards a coming messiah And jesus says this multiple times in his gospels That that the law points towards him that um, If you believe moses you would believe me because he wrote about me So the entire purpose of the law Is to almost be a shadow of what's to come in Jesus and to point towards a greater way of being righteous in the eyes of God. So that's the purpose of the law. Now that we understand the purpose of the law and knowing this, we should be set when it comes to the law for the rest of Romans and anything else we cover. Let's hop into Romans 6. Let's start in verse 15. Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's interesting that Paul assumes that we are to be slaves or servants to something, either sin and disobedience or obedience and righteousness, which would be, you know, following Jesus. But what shocked me is this assumption about humanity that paul gives us that insists on us being Disciplined or insist on us serving something I was expecting a third option here. Like I was expecting paul to say yeah, you can either be you know A slave to sin which leads to death or you can be a slave to obedience which leads to righteousness And also you could just not be a slave to anything like you would think (laughs) That would be a, a possible third option to not be a slave or servant to anyone or anything just being completely free but paul hits on this idea that there is no freedom without discipline and restraint i'm gonna say that again there is no freedom without discipline and restraint that kind of seems counterintuitive because see the modern ideal Says that we can be truly free from everything and everyone we're free from rules free from order free from guidelines But that does not produce true freedom Discipline Is the price of freedom Discipline is how you obtain Freedom I was listening to a lecture from jordan peterson and he gives this example Of one desire to be a pianist, right? You want to have the freedom to play the piano. That's a free choice you can make. But if you want to have the freedom of playing the piano, you can't just walk up and partake in your free desire to play. Because you're going to suck. <laughs> you're not going to be good. You're not going to be truly free to express your your creativity and your artistic ability without some sort of discipline guiding you towards exp- expertise in playing the piano. It requires immense work and discipline and rules and guidelines that must be followed for you to gain the skills necessary to have that true musical freedom. And once you do, once you go through that painstaking process of discipline, you can then obtain what's necessary to have full freedom on the piano. Freedom requires obedience. Once again, in the case of the piano, you have to obey musical theory. You have to obey the guide of an instructor. You have to obey the process of practice. You can't bypass these things and still obtain freedom. And Paul understands this. And he points this out, that in the realm of life and death, if we want freedom in Christ, it requires discipline and obedience. You know, what's interesting is that freedom in a sense... Is a sacrifice. I'm not I'm not just talking about Christ's sacrifice because he gives us eternal life and freedom in that sense, but I'm just talking on an everyday level. Sustainable freedom requires the discipline of sacrifice. It's really cool when you when you look at human beings throughout history, you see that we have this remarkable ability to put aside our selfish whims in the moment to obtain a better outcome in the future. And why do we do this? Because we want to have the freedom of security in a future moment. So we discipline ourselves and we sacrifice in the present in order to obtain a more freeing possibility in the future. We'll sacrifice money from our paychecks. We'll save up cash to help secure financial freedom when when we retire. And this idea is what Paul wants us to see, that if we want to obtain true freedom, we have to sacrifice our sinful whims in the moment but this freedom is different this is not only a freedom that is promised in the future right because it on on one hand it would make sense if we sacrifice our sinful whims in the moment to only obtain freedom in the future but this freedom we receive in the moment when we sacrifice our sinful whims in the moment and become disciplined to righteousness in the example of Christ. We don't have to wait for freedom in the future. We receive freedom in that moment. And this is a freedom that is freely obtained by obedience to the one who already made the sacrifice. Oh, the Bible is so dope. Paul is so dope. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is why I said I'm ready for this episode, but we're going to keep going. Verse 17, but thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So look at the succession here. It's our nature to fall under discipline. It's, our, it's human nature to fall under some set of rules and guidelines. And in the view of life and death, we are either under the rule of sin or we're under the rule of righteousness. And Paul shows that in our natural state of affairs, if it plays out, we will obey the guidelines of sin. We will become slaves to sin. That's why he says in verse 17, that you who were once slaves of sin, that's everybody. Now, I want to point out something so we don't have misunderstanding. Slave in this context is not the same type of slave that that we might think of in like the American South because slave in the american south meant that against your will you were being forced against your will to obey and to do something but but slave in this context in the way that paul's using it is not some type of overpowering force that defies your will it's a willful subjection to its discipline and restrictions so although discipline can lead to freedom if you subject yourself willfully to destructive discipline it can lead to death. So what's the solution? What is the right discipline? Paul tells us that it's the teaching to which you were committed. That's the right discipline. That's the discipline that leads to freedom. Now for the Roman church, that would have been the testimony of the apostles and Paul's theology in this letter. But for us, it's the entire Bible. It's the entire culmination of the word of God. That is the teaching to which we stay disciplined in order to be slaves to righteousness, which entails everlasting life and freedom. Paul continues on in verse 19. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading sanctification so let me get let me give you some background into the morality of rome particularly regarding sexual immorality and i think this is important to note because paul i mean is writing to the people in rome and clearly if he's saying that we that they have presented you know their members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness there has to be something in mind and I think that Paul would have had something like this in mind when writing this letter to the Romans. And I know he definitely had something in mind like this in writing his letter to Titus. And it's that the people of Rome were far more sexually promiscuous than we would think. It's actually insane. If you, if you look it up, it is insane how sexually liberated they were. They partook in prostitution like it was normal. They had brothels. Partook in public erotic dancing adultery was not frowned upon now Although it could be grounds for divorce, but there was no negative stigma around divorce You read all of these things you hear about all of this and then you juxtapose that with the teachings of The torah that paul grew up with And it's very clear to paul (laughs) That the roman people were presenting themselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness before they had the everlasting salvation of Jesus Christ but they also idolized gods the greek gods that that was a thing in rome and they looked at their leaders their caesars as godlike as divine human beings paul gives us some more um insight cuz in his letter to titus um he's very He's really hitting on the fact that the men and the women need to have restraint and they need to kind of get back to The ideal that god had in creation And what I pointed out in my episode on Titus that on the letter to titus that paul wrote Is that The greek gods were idolized by the roman people They were idolized And so you have the greek gods like zeus, right? Zeus was the big boy He was the main dude and he was believed to have loose sexual morals. There were stories where he would seduce women. He would lie and disguise himself as their husbands and as other men to get what he wanted from them. Zeus was not a good moral character. And so these are the things that the Roman culture would have been led to idolize and partake in. And Paul's saying, yo, 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 <laughs> y'all once presented yourself to this type of stuff, but now present yourself." To righteousness and he calls them from the lawlessness to following the ethic in life of jesus that's really important for us to understand that context all right on to verse 20 for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regards to righteousness but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, Paul makes an important observation regarding freedom and the discipline we choose to fall under. Whatever you choose to be obedient to, you will be free from its opposition. That's interesting. This is not only a religious truth, but this has non religious truth and value as well. Look, if you're disciplined, To the vows made to your spouse, you will be free from the act of adultery. If you are disciplined to the requirements of a healthy lifestyle, you are free from the act of laziness and gluttony. If you are disciplined to the wisdom of your parents, you are free from the detrimental mistakes caused by ignorance. And Paul points out that we were free from righteousness because at one point we were disciplined by sin, we obeyed sin. But now, and this is where Paul goes in, he says, now that we obey God, we are free from sin. Now that we're disciplined by the righteousness of God, we are free from sin. And how do we see this? Well, Paul says that we see it by the fruit, the fruit. This is huge. See, look, it's one thing for Paul to say that we need to be slaves or that we need to be disciplined to God, because it's good and righteous and we get eternal life. That's one thing. And admittedly, those are things that we become when we accept Jesus into our life. That is true. But that happens in an unobservable sense. Like like, look, when Jesus gave me salvation and made me righteous and justified before God, I didn't feel any different. Maybe you're like me. Maybe, maybe when you gave your life to Christ, you did not actually see immediately a change in your life. You might've noticed that you went home and you had the same old desires and, and, and you were partaking in the same old sin. You might not have noticed a tangible change when you received the justification and righteousness of Jesus Christ. I couldn't see or feel or smell or experience this righteousness and justification that I had received. Did it happen? Yes, of course. But at that time, there was no perceivable fruit to myself or those around me. But when we become slaves to God and we actually discipline ourselves to the example of Christ in pursuit of freedom, we will see what Paul says is the fruit that leads to sanctification and eternal life. There will be observable changes observable fruit in your life that leads to freedom When you fall under the discipline of king jesus That's what paul's getting at here And he ends with one of the most popular verses in the bible For the wages of sin is death But the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus Our lord That's a good one to end it on right there, man. I hope y'all enjoyed this study of the end of Romans 6. I cannot wait to see y'all next week as we continue on in Romans. Peace out.